Good. Uh, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. We'll also be reading this morning a brief passage in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, my name is Mark Carley. I'm uh, privileged to serve here as uh, one of your elders. Uh, so we're going to cover some very uh, familiar territory this morning, and you're going to see it for the very first time. Luke chapter 15, verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And Luke 15, verse 31. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. We'll begin with verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Please pray with me. Father God, we adore you. And we are grateful for the truth and the power that is here in Scripture. We are grateful for the promise of peace and rest when we cast our cares and our burdens upon you. Uh, Father, we uh, have experienced uh, sadness and anger at the, the violence that has marred our, our state and our nation this week. And Lord, I confess, we, we look to politicians and policy to solve these problems. Uh, but we know, Lord, that the solutions to bitterness and hatred, racism and mistrust are found here in your word and in fellowship with you. It's our prayer this morning that we would humble ourselves, confess our sins, and that you would heal our land. We think also this morning, Lord, of uh, families that have recently suffered the loss of loved ones. We pray for the Gilbertsons and the Millers this morning, that, Lord, they would find rest and comfort in your loving arms. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning. Late in the 16th century, <coughs> Rembrandt van Rijn, the famed Dutch artist, painted a picture entitled Return of the Prodigal Son, which was based on the parable of the son and the loving father found in Luke chapter 15. And there it is. You can see a little bit of it. Apparently the original painting in Leningrad has quite a bit more detail, but this is what we have. Now Rembrandt needed to take some artistic license here, you know, presenting the older son and the younger son together at the same time, but he did capture the essence of the message of this parable. We see the prodigal son here kneeling before the father, broken, beaten, dirty, shoeless, hair shaved, 
nothing to offer, nothing to bring back home. Kneeling in front of the Father, being welcomed home with compassion and with joy. We see people in the background looking on, wondering, how can this be? Uh, how can uh, they, uh, how, how could the Son be welcomed home this way? And they're wondering, wondering if they could experience some part of this Father's love, wondering if they could have a home in this family. Kind of in between there, difficult to see, we see a person seated, beating his breast. This is probably a tax collector, someone who is an outcast. Looking around the corner, there's a woman, another outsider in that day, wondering if perhaps she can be a part of this family, if this message of hope is for her. And there are other shadowy characters in the background, attracted by love, who have been rejected by the religious people of the day, but they're hoping to hear a message of hope. And then off to the side, over here on the right, we have the elder son, reserved, resentful, pious, privileged, not willing at all to throw himself at the mercy of the father, and certainly not willing to admit that he too needed grace and restoration. So I want to start out by talking a little bit about the resentment to the Pharisees resentment of the older son. Luke sets this story up for us. Actually, Jesus sets this story up for us as Luke records it in chapter 15. And Luke says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Jesus was attractive to the people on the outside. The tax collectors and the sinners knew that Jesus had something to offer them that was good and that this something was what they wanted. They were hungry for a different and for a better life and they were becoming increasingly attracted to his message. And so they gathered around, hungry, beaten down, shoeless, rejected, on the outside looking in with no one willing to show them the way to God other than Jesus. And in stark contrast to this stood the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Sneering, contemptuous, they saw Jesus' willingness to meet with Skinner, sinners as nothing short of scandalous. Already seething with hatred towards Jesus and his message. They were looking for ways to discredit his testimony, to blunt his influence, and to rally people to their cause. Still stinging from Jesus' rebuke of them from a few days earlier, as he called them out on their hypocrisy, they had begun to oppose him fiercely, we read in Luke chapter 12, and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something that he might say. The central message of Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 15 is this. There is a rejoicing in heaven, verse 7, in the presence of the angels, verse 10, and by God himself, 
when a sinner repents. This message is delivered in three stories, but it has one theme. And this theme is that God has an endless, boundless, amazing, continual love for his children. And it has one purpose. And that is to call people into repentance from their sin and into the joy of the Father to call people home. Now the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had a very, very different message. The rabbis of that day had such disdain, such contempt for those that they deemed to be unclean, ungodly, unfit, too dirty, that they wouldn't even teach them the very word of God. And the Pharisees had this saying, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. So there was no compassion. There was no hope in their eyes for these people. They believed that sinners had to approach God the right way. And set sharply against that, we hear Jesus say, I'll come to where you are. I will find you, and I will rejoice when you repent and live. And if you have your Bibles open, you'll see that Luke chapter 15 is divided uh, by the copyists uh, into three parables. The first section is the parable of lost sheep. The second section is entitled parable of lost coin. And then the final and longest section is the parable of the prodigal son. But I think we need to keep in mind, however, that as you look at this text, that Jesus presented this teaching as one unbroken discourse. It was one teaching. It's illustrated in three ways, but it is one teaching. And as a matter of fact, in verse 3, we say that Jesus told them this parable. The first illustration in verses 4 through 7 uh, gives us an image of Jesus as a good shepherd, the fulfillment of prophecy. And the prophet Jeremiah had this to say concerning the coming Messiah. He says, I myself will gather the remnant out of my flock. Out of all the I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their pastures, where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing. The second illustration we see in verses 8 through 10, what's referred to as the parable of lost coin, uh, illustrates and shows us that God has the kind of caring, passionate, compassionate, and nurturing love that was demonstrated by the woman featured in that part of the story. Luke has already recorded Christ's words to this effect in chapter 13 where he quotes Christ as saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. And finally then, in the remainder of chapter 15, we have portrayal of God as a loving father. Now, if it was Jesus' intent to really shock and offend the Pharisees with this illustration, he really hit a home run with this one. 
Baseball hadn't been invented for at least 2,000 years. But we're all Americans, so we understand what it means to hit a home run. He drove the point home. <coughs> Not only were pigs unclean and forbidden as food for the Jewish people, it was also against Jewish law to keep or tend to or care for pigs. Now, when I was a boy, I grew up on a hog farm west of Pillager, um, <coughs> about 20 minutes from here. My dad had moved from the rich, fertile farm country of southern Minnesota up here to try to farm. It took me quite a while to figure out why he made that decision. But uh, he was providing for his family. He moved up in 1953, and he was providing for his family by raising grain, hay, hogs, and cattle on a hard scrabble farm in this part of the state. And one of the memories I have from uh, my childhood or from my youth is feeding the sows in the hog yard on our farmstead. Now that's not it, but it could be it. And uh, always hungry, generally large, never timid, never polite. These hogs were pretty voracious eaters. And we would drive out into the hog yard with a wagon and a tractor that had ear corn on it. And ear corn is basically corn on the cob that's quite dry. And using a shovel, we would then scoop this corn out onto the ground. And the hogs would come in, and they would eat as much as they could, as quickly as they could. And then they would spend the remainder of the day kind of rooting around in this hog yard, trying to find the kernels that had broken off the cob. And in the process of doing that, of course, they would work the cob, the kernels, the rocks, the mud, and the manure down this side hill and up against the fence where it would create a dam and a hole. And that would fill in with water, and that water, of course, would turn to mud. And this was the filthiest, dirtiest, grimiest, smelliest, slimiest place on a farm that was basically dirty, grimy, slimy, and smelly. It was a farm in the 1960s, after all. And it was this picture that would come to mind whenever I would hear this text read in the King James Version, of course, from the Presbyterian Church here in Brainerd or at home as part of our family devotions. And so I'm going to read the King James text. It says, And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him to his fields to feed the swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did seek, and no man gave us unto him. Now, this picture is not a pretty picture. Uh, it reminds me of a saying that says, never wrestle with a pig because you'll only get dirty and the hog enjoys it. There's another lesson there. But at any rate, this would be the image that the Pharisees would have had in mind when they heard Christ say a certain man had a son and then this story happens and he's in this hog pen and he's taking care of the pigs. And so, so as the Pharisees were thinking about these sinners who were coming into Jesus and who were wanting to hear his story and were looking to be cleansed, this was it. And they said, we're not going to have anything to do with it. So if we look at Luke 15, we see, here's what I see and here's what I think the text illustrates. Two lost sons, one loving father, and a text full of resentment, rebellion, repentance, reconciliation, restoration, and rejoicing. And boy, if there's not a message in a text like that, there isn't a message in any text in Scripture. But most of all, I see God's endless and amazing love for us. 
and his desire for us to return home and to his love. The first point I would like to make, the first thing I would like to point out is that the status of the younger and the older son was never in question. If we look at verse 11, we read, there was a man who had two sons. So these were sons, keep this in mind, these were sons from the beginning of the parable to the end of the parable. The reality of their sonship did not change with their circumstances. In the past, I've often read this parable as a gospel message, one that calls lost sinners to salvation. And while I believe that a gospel message can be drawn from this passage, I don't think that it's the central message of the text. Instead, this is a call to repentance, a message of reconciliation, and an offer of restoration to those of us who have drifted far from home and who have become alienated from God and his love and who need to return. So in verses 11 through 16, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate, and so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired him out, himself out to the citizens of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything to eat. So we have a picture, first of all, of the younger son lost in rebellion. The younger son here makes a conscious, willful decision to break the intimacy of the relationship that he has with the father. The text doesn't tell us why the younger son chose to leave, only that he left. So we read nothing of the conflict, nothing of the stubbornness, the willfulness, the ambition, the anger, or any of the other emotions that led this son to leave his father's love and to reject his father's home. We only know that he said, in effect, Father, I don't need you. I don't want you, and I can get along without you. And as a matter of fact, I would just assume that you were dead. So having said what he said, the younger son gathers his stuff together, sets off for this distant country, and begins looking for love in all the wrong places. And it didn't take long for his adventure to go bad, and it didn't take long for him to start thinking about home. Picking it up in verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and yet here I am starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he did. He got up and he went to his father. At first I thought that this was the picture of repentance in this story. But I wonder, this younger son, is he repenting or is he renegotiating? Is he intent on making a deal? So broke, busted, and disgusted, this young man finally comes to his senses, looks around, and realizes that he is hopeless, helpless, he's harassed, and he's hungry. And the only thing that seems to make any sense to him at this point is to go home. But even here, even now, 
we see a little bit of an unwillingness, some reservation in the younger son. Uh, he's unwilling to completely trust the father. We see that he's willing to go home, to confess that he had sinned, and to seek admittance to his father's house. But he couldn't imagine that his father would still be willing to accept him as a son. Rather, he purposed, he intended, to ask his father to receive him as a servant, as a hired hand, and to let him experience perhaps some, but certainly not all, of the blessings that the father had. None of the blessings that were inherent in his position as a son of the father. And so he rehearsed a speech, and his speech went something like this. Father, I've sinned against you. You were right. I was wrong. I've returned. Now, I don't expect much, since I've already received my blessing and I've squandered all of that, but I'm back. Now, I was kind of hoping that maybe I might earn enough to warrant you keeping around, warrant you keeping me around. Would it be okay with you, Father, if I hired myself out and I lived uh, with the servants and worked for my keep? So even though he knew that he was still his father's son, there was no hope in his mind or expectation in his heart of regaining the intimacy with the father that he had once known. And so I wonder, does that describe you today? Is there anyone here today, as you look at yourself, does that describe you? Do you feel like you're so far from the joy of your salvation that you can never get it back? Does it appear to you that you've fallen so far from grace that you can never return to full fellowship with the God of your salvation? Well, if so, hang on. The Father is more loving than we can imagine or think. He promises grace and peace and abundance and tells us that he will help us in our time of need. So he's looking, he's waiting, and he's watching for you to return. He is eager for you to come back. And he knows, by the way, that you are coming back. He doesn't lose his own. His father didn't lose any of his sons. God doesn't lose his own. So no matter how rough it seems for you now, be assured that God is not going to let you be the first one to permanently slip away beyond the bounds of his love. And so, our rebellious son heads for home, chastened, committed to do better, convinced that intimacy with the father was impossible and forever lost, but yet intent on securing the best deal that he could. Verse 20. But while he was still, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And so now here, I think, is where this text starts to paint the picture of the younger son in a state of true repentance. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And what strikes me here is that the father is not interested in making any kind of a deal. What he was interested in doing was in loving his son. And in the face of that love, the son was able 
to truly commit to repenting. And it's very much worth noting here that the Father's unrestrained, joyful, and eager expression of love preceded any of his son's words of repentance. The Father's love for the Son was as strong pre-repentance as it was post-repentance. Can you get your head around that? As Paul thought about the vast mercy and the love of the Father, he burst into song, as we'll see in Romans 11, 36-33. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so in the face of this kind of unrestrained love, the son forgot all about the deal that he was going to propose. Father, he said, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. No deals, no posturing, no claiming of position, no fear, no reservation, only a complete willingness to place himself as under the grace and mercy and love of his father. And what did the father do? The father responds with joy and acceptance. Joy that a dirty, smelly, ragged, broken, worn-out, dejected sinner had come home. Joy that he could welcome this sinner into his home and eat with him. Joy that this son of his who had been lost was now found. Are you afraid to come home today? Do you fear that maybe God is just a little bit of a Pharisee? That he's going to treat you with contempt? That he's going to chide you maybe for how long it took you to come to your senses? That he's going to chastise you for your wanton ways? That he's going to condemn you to a life of indentured service? And that he's going to confine you to the slaves' quarters? And that he's going to be unwilling to welcome you into his home and to be part of the feast? If so, this message of joy is for you. Scripture says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace. When? To help us in our time of need. Come home. Now we start to see the younger son's restoration. Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it. Let's have a feast, and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found, and so they began to celebrate. The father held nothing back. The robe, and the ring, the footwear, and the feast, were all intended to show that there are no second-class siblings in the family of God. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so, so far in this parable, in this story, it's really kind of a fun and encouraging story in some ways. It's all there. 
we've got a, basically a good kid who made some poor choices, bad choices. We have some easily identifiable son or sins. We've got lust. We've got greed. We've got immorality. We've got selfishness. We've got unrestrained sensuality. I mean, it's all there. We have a predictable life, a, dis, uh, a predictable descent into a life of dissipation and dissolution, followed by a period of intense misery and need. And then we have a coming to senses and a repentance and a return home and soreness and an asking to be forgiven. And you think, boy, this is really a great story about God and his compassion, isn't it? Well, of course it is. But what if this story isn't really your story? What if this isn't about you? What if you've never pictured yourself as the guy wrestling or the person wrestling the pig in the mud? What do you think? Well, I've never fallen that far. I've never run away from home. I'm not that guy. I don't need this story. Well, Jesus has something to say about that, too. What if, let's look at the picture again. What about the older brother? Leads us right to him. Take a look at him again. Does he look pleased? I don't know if you can see the picture clearly enough behind me, but the answer is no. He doesn't look pleased. He's not happy and he's not joyful. And if you asked me to describe the emotion on his face, I would say it's bitterness or it's resentfulness or it's selfishness, but it's certainly not joy. Now, the fact that he's a son is obvious. His robe is red, just like the father's robe. There's light on his face, just like there's light on the father's face. His regal bearing indicates a position of privilege, an advantage of access, and a right to riches. And yet, he's seized. He's sullen, suspicious, reserved, unwilling to go in. So let's go back to the text. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him, he says, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years, I've been slaving for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders, and yet, you never even gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with you, my friends. But when this son of yours, he wouldn't even refer to him as a brother, he says, when this son of yours came back, he says, what are you doing? He squandered your property with prostitutes, and then he comes home and you kill the fattened calf for him. Hmm. Well, here we see the older brother just as lost. The older brother is lost in resentment. Remember how the story started? Sinners were returning home to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were standing off to the side saying, are you kidding me? This man, look at him. He associates with sinners. And if that wasn't bad enough, he eats with them. 
I can tell you one thing. I'm not having anything to do with that. I'm not going in. As a matter of fact, this Jesus guy, I think we should kill him, and we should probably kill everyone that follows him too because they're all fools and they're all idiots and they're all on the wrong side of this story. Well, let's look and see how Jesus brings it home for the uh, Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, and so he called on one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother is coming, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And doesn't that pretty much describe our opening scene in verses 1 and 2? So this tells me that this message was intended for the Pharisees and for the teachers of the law. Verse 3 says, then Jesus told them this parable. Them. Who? The mutterers. The resentful ones. The ones who thought that sinners should die. The ones who, at the very least, thought that sinners should have to clean themselves up before they would have the temerity or the audacity or the boldness to approach the throne of God. But this message of hope and restoration, of forgiveness and compassion that we see in this story extends to both sons both the prodigal and the one who stayed home. God, the loving Father, loves both sons with equal passion. He desires fellowship with both. He is looking for repentance and an opportunity for rejoicing in the life of the older son as much as in the life of the younger. But the lostness of the older son, while just as real, is much harder for us to identify. Dutiful, responsible and obedient. The older son did all the right things. He stayed home. He worked hard. Respected and admired and praised, he was likely considered and held up as a model son. And yet when he's confronted by the father's joy at the return of the younger brother, it becomes glaringly obvious and visible that he is resentful that he is proud, unkind, selfish, accusatory. And this forces, I think, this forces us to commit some, or to consider some hard questions. What does more damage in a relationship? Lust or resentment? What causes more harm? Greed or bitterness? And what leaves more lasting scars? Debauchery? or a harsh condemnation of others. And so this morning, what I want us to consider and to think about is that those of us in the church are as capable of squandering the joy of our salvation as are the ones who leave. You know, a few weeks ago, June 5th, I believe was the date, we had a large number of young men here from Teen Challenge worshiping with us. And as we were singing, first boldly I approach, and then the mountain of God, I found myself watching them abandon themselves into this worship. And the joy of their salvation was apparent, it was contagious, it was infectious, it was fun. But even as I found myself watching it, I found myself thinking, how can this be? How can they be so joyous, when really all I'm feeling this morning is tired? How can, uh, you know, God, I try to do the right things. 
Uh, I've stayed home. If you check, I'm pretty much up to date on my yearly Bible read-through, and I think I'm praying more than I used to, and, and I'm limiting my screen time, and by the way, I'm staying away from places where I shouldn't go. And you know, God, I've served this church as an elder, and uh, they weren't all that easy times. And so, you know, Lord, where's my joy? And into that selfish and sinful and self-centered muttering, Jesus says, my son, he said, with no judgment, with no remonstration, with no chiding, with love, he said, my son, you're, you're always with me. And everything that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. What we don't know here is whether or not the older son ever repented. But we do know that the father's love for him was as great as it was for this younger son. And even more importantly and more encouragingly, we see that the Father's love for us is not conditioned on our repentance. The Father, before the younger son had an opportunity to speak one word of repentance, the Father ran to him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him, welcoming him home. And even while the older brother's arms were crossed in resentment and his jaw set in anger, the father went out to him and began to plead with him, just as he had with the younger son, asked him to come inside and assured him that a banquet of love was available to him if he would just come home. And so, our story ends right where it began. This man, Jesus, welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. The Pharisees saw that as a badge of shame. Jesus claimed it as a medal of honor. So where are you? Are you far from God this morning in the midst of squandering his blessings and riotous and wanton living? Jesus says, come home. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or... Are you alienated from God by your religiosity, by your striving, by what you see as your hard work? Are you resentful of those who are being welcomed into the feast? Jesus says to you, come home. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So don't stand on the outside looking in. Repent. Come home. Be the reason that there will be a celebration in heaven today in the presence of angels hosted by the Father as they rejoice over your return to the abundant life that Jesus has promised. Let's pray. God, you're a gracious and compassionate God. You don't count our sins against us. You don't keep a record of our wrongs. And you look at those of us who have called on the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ, and claimed redemption and reconciliation and restoration. In Jesus' life and sacrificial death and resurrection, you see Jesus. You see a son. You see a daughter. You see someone that you long to have in the warm embrace of your love. So, Lord, 
encourage me today, encourage each one of us here today. Help us to understand that you love us, that your actions are loving actions, and that you desire fellowship with us, and that you are ready, waiting, and watching, eager for us to come home. 